Good morning. Good. We're going to continue this morning on our series, Grace Really Is Amazing. Talking about God's grace to us, his unmerited favour, despite us being disobedient creatures. And I want to start this morning uh, by talking a little bit about Game of Thrones. Any Game of Thrones fans in? Show of hands. Two, three. Okay, well, for those who don't know, Game of Thrones is a a fantasy series on HBO uh, based on a series of novels by George R.R. Martin. And it's about uh, an iron throne and various pretenders to the throne and how they fight each other for this fictional seat of power. It's a very bloodthirsty show. It's filled with gore and violence and sex. And actually... I'm not surprised that many of you haven't seen it, because <laughs> you're obviously all good Christian men and women. I, of course, don't watch it or have not read any of the seven books, so uh, I don't know why I started there. Um, but I spent a bit, I've been spending quite a bit of time in the Old Testament this week, in the first two-thirds of your Bible. Uh, and I've got to say, I think that George R. R. Martin, creator of Game of Thrones, may have stolen quite a few of his ideas from the Old Testament because it too is pretty bloodthirsty and gory and about war and murder and sex. So, I'm going to reclaim it this morning. To avoid copyright infringement, I'm calling uh, this one Grace of the Throne (laughs) rather than Game of Thrones. Um, And I'm going to tell you a story from 2 Samuel verse 9. But before we get into the story, I just want to set the scene for you a little bit. Are you ready, Carl? The old king is dead. (laughs) Having witnessed his three sons lose their lives on the battlefield, the enemy drawing nearer and mortally wounded and fearing what they would do to his body, he fell on his own sword. Both the king and the crown prince lost their lives that day, signalling the end of House Saul, the beginning of the downfall. Only one of his four sons remained alive. Now was the time for the old king's enemies to strike, to pour into the kingdom and tear it apart, and there's panic in the royal courts. Those connected to House Saul knew that they must flee for their lives, run to safety, escape the city while they still can. And amidst the hullabaloo and the chaos, a nurse grabs hold of a five-year-old boy, the son of the crown prince, the slain prince, and runs to the wagons to carry him to safety. But on her way, she trips, and the child flies from her grasp and crashes into the flagstones. There's a sickening crunch, and he screams in pain. I told you it was very Game of Thrones. But there's no time to look for a doctor. She picks up the child and bundles him into the wagons and takes him to a place called Lodabar where she hides him at the house of Makir. It becomes apparent that both of his ankles are shattered and he will never walk again. Meanwhile, Saul's only remaining son, the youngest son, Ishbosheth, is crowned king and tries his best to reclaim the kingdom. But he is a weak ruler. And another more popular leader has arisen. The boy David 
fame for slaying the giant Goliath has become a man, a mighty warrior who would be king. As the story unfolds, allegiances shift and any remaining authority left in a house Saul quickly ebbs away and eventually Ishbosheth is murdered in his sleep by a pair of opportunistic traitors from his own ranks. And with the last of Saul's sons dead, his former enemy David is crowned king. And the new king is loved by his people. We can, it's, a bit, it's a happier moment now. We can have the lights a bit brighter. <laughs> He's loved by his people. And as his po- popularity and power grow, he becomes a formidable leader. And he expands the kingdom from 6,000 square miles to 60,000 square miles. And with his incredible military might, he establishes a new kingdom, a new capital city and royal court, greater than anything that has been seen before. Meanwhile, the crippled boy lives out his days in fear, hidden away in Lodabar. Knowing that if he were ever discovered by the king, then surely his life would be forfeit. As the news filters through of the growing power and influence of the king, he loses all hope. See, Lodabar was a desolate place. The name itself meant no pasture. The dusty, barren land had given all that it could yield. And the young boy who would have been a prince in the royal court grew up here as a fugitive, crippled by the nurse's fall without hope, scratching out a living alone in the desert. Years pass by. And then one day, around 15 years later, his worst fears are realised. In the distance, a cloud of dust. The king's chariots are arriving in Lodabar. He's been discovered. Panic sets in. Who had given him up? What could he do? What would happen to him now? How could he escape? His disability meant that he couldn't run. His fate was sealed. He knew one thing for certain. His life was at an end. As they journeyed to the capital city in the chariots, he sat and thought about his family and in particular his grandfather Saul. And all the time Saul had tried to kill King David. What hope did he have? And as they approached the royal city, he stared in wonder at its grandeur and size and the people lined the streets hoping to catch a glimpse of the chariot and the cargo within. Whispers had been going round that the last remaining descendant of Saul had been found. And eventually they arrive at the king's court and the cripple is supported through the curtained entrance. And immediately his senses are assaulted. All around him are wonderful tapestries and paintings and there's music being played on lyres and harps and cymbals and tambourines. And there's a buzz and a hum of conversation. And in front of him is a long table laid with the finest foods and jars of wine. And the smell alone causes pangs of hunger in his stomach. For a minute he forgets all about why he's been brought into the king's court that day and just longs to fill himself with the food. But as conversation dies down and the music ceases, all eyes are turned on him and he remembers. In front of him, on a magnificent throne, is King David, dressed in royal blue with a golden crown on his head filled with jewels, a formidable warrior of a man. He's smiling. He presumes he's glad that he's about to deal with the last remaining threat to his throne. Trembling, the young man, leaning on his crutches, 
bows his head and awaits his fate. He heard the strong and powerful voice of the king speak one word, his name, Mephibosheth. His mouth dry, his throat constricted, his heart pounding out of his chest. He can barely utter his response. Your servant, he says. And then he hears the words he would never have expected to hear. Don't be afraid, David said to him. For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him. Bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, you will always eat at my table. And Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Wow, what a story. If anyone works in television or, or film, I think that could be a hit and I'm very happy to write the script for you. <laughs> Just uh, speak to me afterwards. But in a time when it was expected that the new king would hunt down and destroy the remnants of the old empire, the old dynasty, here we find this odd little story of grace, of restoration, of forgiveness, buried away in the bloodthirsty Old Testament. And it's a great story, but how does it relate to us? Why tell it in church this morning? It's all very well for Mephibosheth now living out his days in the king's courts, but that's hardly our story, is it? Well, maybe it is. You see, as much as this is a story about Mephibosheth and King David, I also think it's a story about us, and I think it's a story about Jesus, and I think it's a story about what Jesus has done for us. So let's start with us. Who are we in the story? I'm sure most of us would like to think that we are King David, surveying our kingdom, sitting on our throne with our crown on our head. But actually, I think this morning we're closer to Mephibosheth. And I'm surprised I've got his name right every time so far. (laughs) Mephibosheth the cripple. You see, throughout the entire chapter in 2 Samuel 9, he's referred to as being lame in both feet. On three separate occasions we read this. And to us reading it today it seems a little bit odd. It seems a bit uncomfortable. Why keep pointing out his disability? And I think it's for the most part we live in a society today that doesn't define people by their physical disabilities. Unfortunately Mephibosheth did not. In his day disability was considered something shameful something to be hidden. In fact, he probably was given the name of Phibosheth after his fall because his name means from the mouth of shame. Not a very nice name, is it? To people in those days, physical disabilities were seen as a sign of God's judgment. Those familiar with your Bibles, you might remember that story in John 9 where Jesus heals the man born blind and on that occasion the disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he may be born blind. 
disabilities were considered punishment for sin and people carrying such disabilities were ostracized. They were cast out and cut off from society. So Mephibosheth really did have the odds stacked against him. He was crippled and he was orphaned on the same day, something else that was not a good thing in those days. And he spent 15 years of his life in hiding, fearing what the king would do to him. And his infirmity and his fear ended up defining his whole life. And I think it's in that that we are like Mephibosheth. You see, just like Mephibosheth, we are living out our days with a serious disability. A disability that's the result of a fall. Not a physical fall, but a spiritual fall. Our sin and our disobedience to God. Because of our sin, we have become shameful in God's eyes. In a sense, we have become fatherless as well. Cut off from our heavenly father. In that, Mephibosheth represents us. Paul writes in Romans 5 that when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. And this was our form. And over time, sin has weighed us down and sin has robbed us of our hope. We get to feeling when it comes to God, there's no way he would ever be interested in us. We're full of shame and regret and held captive by our own fears and failures. And we have our own labels. Maybe not cripple, per se, but others. Loser. Cheater. Addict. Bully. Tramp. Failure. Liar. Stupid. Heartless. Cold. Words that end up defining us and holding us captive. Words that come, become for us our own personal low bar, Our own personal desolate place. And much like Mephibosheth, there's nothing that we can do personally to change our situation. He couldn't make himself well. He couldn't fix his feet. And he couldn't return to the life that he was supposed to be leading. Not only was his family set against the new king, but because of his deformity, he'd never have been allowed in the royal courts, much less to be able to sit at the king's table. He was without hope, helpless and needed rescuing. Which brings us to the king. At the start of chapter 9, David asks this question. He said, Is there anyone still left on the house of Saul whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And you see, David was secure. He was secure in his power. He was secure in his authority and his kingdom. He had warriors and noblemen at his service. He needed nothing at all, much less the crippled grandson of the former ruler. In fact, if you look at Ziba's response, in verse 3, you get a sense that there's some hesitance. He says, there is still a son of Jonathan, um, but he's, he's lame in both feet. I'm not really sure that you want to you deal with him. You know, he's, he's out in the desert. Leave him to it. Let him rot. But the king is undeterred. And he sends someone to seek him out. Now, for me, when I read that, I saw Jesus. Sort of like one of those um, magic eye pictures. Do you remember them from the 90s where you sort of stare at them and then the, the picture pops out in front of you? You might have heard that saying that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And I think often when we read these stories we can catch glimpses of Jesus. 
In fact, Jesus did it himself. He, he often used the, the, what he called the scriptures, the Old Testament, to reveal things about himself. At the end of Luke, he says that he spoke to the disciples about all the scriptures and where it concerned him. And I think this is the best way for us to approach our Old Testament, is to look at it through the lens of Jesus and see where he is in the stories. And I think I've found him in this story. I've found him on three separate occasions. And the first is in, in this, this idea that the king sent someone to collect Mephibosheth, to seek him out. Not the other way around. Mephibosheth uh, didn't even know what he was missing. He didn't know about this promise. He didn't know what would be waiting for him. Well, he assumed that death would be waiting for him when he approached the king. He had no desire to go to him. And so the king sends someone to fetch him. And in Luke 19.10, Jesus says about himself, I have come to seek and save the lost. Not those who are, are physically lost, but those who are spiritually lost lost, those who are separate from God. And Jesus came to earth in order to reveal God's heart to us. He was not content for us to remain in Lodabar. Paul writes in Romans 5, verse 8, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. There we go. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still in Lodabar, while we were still living sinfully, while we're still living under those labels that I read out earlier, God visits us in the person of Jesus so that we can be brought back to him to understand what we too have been missing out on as well. So for me, that person who went to fetch Mephibosheth was Jesus. The second picture of Jesus in the story has to do with Jonathan. In verse 7, it says, David says to Mephibosheth, Don't be afraid. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. What had Jonathan got to do with anything? To understand this, I need to give you just a little bit more history surrounding the story. You see, despite the animosity between David and Saul, or Saul and David even, Jonathan, Saul's eldest son, the crown prince, loved David. They were like brothers together. They were so close, in fact, that they made a covenant together. We don't really have a, a sort of modern equivalent to this. It's, not, it's a little bit more than a pinky promise. Um, it involved something of a ritual, and invariably uh, with things in this day and age, it involved the, the killing of animals. Um, but another part of the covenant was that they would um, cut their wrists and they would shake hands, um, and the idea was that their blood would mix. Um, so where we get the term blood brothers from. Um, and then they would heal the wound on their wrist in such a way that it would leave a scar. And the scar was supposed to be a reminder of the covenant that they made with each other. And we don't know the, the exact terms of this covenant, but we know that the intention was that they would remain loyal to each other and that they would show each other kindness and love. Um, back in 1 Samuel chapter 20, Jonathan says to David, but show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so that I may not be killed and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the earth. So you see, David's kindness to Mephibosheth came as a result of this covenant and this agreement. And I just wonder, as Mephibosheth stood before the throne whether he noticed the scar on his wrist. 
symbolizing the covenant that would save his life. Remind you of anyone? And this for me is the second picture of Jesus in the story. You see, like Mephibosheth, we have no merit on our own. And yet we're able to enter the throne room of God because of the faithful covenant that another has made on our behalf. A covenant of redemption that was fulfilled on the cross by Jesus. The famous passage in Isaiah 53 says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. You see, because of that sacrifice, we have a place at God's table. We have a way back to him. One final picture of Jesus for for me in the story, and there may be more, is that in order to eat at the king's table, you had to be considered a child of the king. Look at verse 11, it says, So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And it could read, as one of the king's sons. And really, that's what Jesus did for us. John writes at the start of his gospel, and gospel just means good news, that yet all who did receive him, those who believed in his name, and he's talking about Jesus here, he gave the right to become children of God. And Paul echoes this in his letter to the Galatians, where he says, so in Christ Jesus, oh, I've gone too far, there we go. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Because of Jesus' sacrifice for us, we are able to be considered a child of God with all the same rights attached the chapter ends this way sorry the chapter ends this way it says and Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table and he was lame in both feet why mention that disability again we get it we know he's lame in both feet why keep mentioning it I think it's mentioned because it didn't matter to the king You see, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more and there's nothing you can do to make him love you less. It doesn't matter what label we've come with this morning. Loser, cheater, addict, bully, tramp, failure, liar, stupid, heartless. That video we showed at the start, had they were all true stories, by the way. There was no actors in that video. Those were all labels that they had given themselves. It doesn't matter. We are all loved the same. How are we loved? Well, verses uh, 1, 3 and 7, David speaks about showing kindness. He says, there's only one left from the house of Saul who I can show kindness to. And kindness is um, the, the, the translated word, the English word from the Hebrew. And when I read kindness, I sort of think of, I don't know, maybe like holding open a door or cooking a meal or something. But the original word, the word in Hebrew, hashid, has got a much more deeper meaning. It's uh, got three words that are always interacting together. Three components to the word. And they are strength, steadfastness and love. So when David is talking about showing kindness, what he's really talking about is showing a strong, unfailing love. And this is the kind of love that God wants to show to us. Not because of anything that we have done 
but because of Jesus. And this is grace. Remember, there was nothing that Mephibosheth could do to help himself. There was nothing he could do to improve his situation. His acceptance and his place at the king's table was based on the king's grace alone. And I think sometimes we fall into that trap, don't we? We try and make ourselves worthy of our place in heaven. We try and make ourselves good enough for God. But we can never make ourselves worthy. Our position is assured by grace alone. We can't win his favour with the way that we behave or the work that we do for him. But we can rely on the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Give you just a final verse this morning. Hebrews 4. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weakness, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we'll receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Because of Jesus, we can boldly approach the throne of God. Knowing that although we're unworthy, his strong and unfailing love will find us. So let me finish with a a question to you this morning. Where are you living? Are you in the palace, seated at the king's table? Or are you stood in low debar, hiding in shame? My guess is that if Mephibosheth had wanted to, he could have rejected the king's offer and he could have t- returned to living out his days in Lodabar. And the sad thing is, I think that many of us do this. We reject God's offer of acceptance through Jesus and we return to our lives not understanding what we've given up. Mephibosheth wasted 20 years of his life in Lodabar. The covenant was in effect from his birth. It was already in place. The work was already done. David never sought down or never tried to kill any of Saul's descendants. And maybe this morning this is the first time you've heard about Jesus' promise to you. That no matter who you are or what you've done, you're accepted by God with a strong and unfailing love. And I just say this morning, please, please don't go back to Lodabar. And some of us, I think, accepted that offer a long time ago, but we've returned to living in our desert place. We forget that actually we're children of God now. Our place is secure. And we go back to those old labels. Can I just remind you this morning that you are indeed a child of God, loved by him, regardless of anything that you've done or will do. It's time to accept the grace of the throne. I want to close in prayer. And if you fall into either of those two groups this morning, if you've never heard this message, or you have heard it but you've just somehow forgotten, then I'd encourage you to pray along with me. You can use my words or you can use your own words. But there's something waiting for you here this morning. An acceptance, a strong, unfailing love. Let's bow our heads. Father God, I feel as though I'm far away from you, stuck in my own low bar. 
And this morning I want to accept your offer of grace. I want to get to know you as my King and my Lord and Saviour. Thank you for sending Jesus to show us the way back to you. Father, I pray that you would help me to live out my days in your courts as your child and to know that truth and to understand that strong and unfailing love that you have. Amen. Amen. I wanted to finish with um, a worship song this morning, but it's not one that we've sung here before, so um, I'm going to play it to you on a a video instead. Some of you may know it, and if you do, then please feel free to sing along. Um, If not, then just let the words speak to you, because really they reflect some of what I've been saying this morning. The song starts this this way. It says, By grace alone, somehow I stand, where even angels fear to tread, invited by redeeming love before the throne of God above. He pulls me close with nail-scarred hands into his everlasting arms.